The episodes just keep on coming, folks. This is 161 episode of A Pint with Shawnee B. Uh, someone wrote and said, are you still getting any money from your Patreon account? And I am. And I th- I'd like to thank everyone who's stuck with that. Some of you have quite naturally become a Patreon donor and switched off the tap, which I totally understand. It is still available. Anyone listening who maybe doesn't know we have a Patreon account, because I'm not, I, I don't like just constantly flagging it. Uh, the where the podcast does have its own Patreon site, www.patreon.com dot com backslash shawnee b and you can go there and commit to helping the podcast stay on its feet during these unprecedented times if you enjoy the show if you like myself and the don wobbling away and warbling away about the nonsense that we warble away on uh, a little donation would be much appreciated although in these times of tsunami of podcasts everywhere i realize that everybody is asking for the same thing thank you very, very much to those people who have stuck with it and continue to be sponsors of the podcast. This week we are together again, myself and the Don. Hello. Hello. I was just thinking as you were going on about the uh, Patreon thing, and it's, it, it is a bit like you don't want to go out with the begging bowl, like, but yeah. I mean, a bit awkward, but any chance, you know, you're going to pay for your content, no? But I've noticed, especially with Irish content, that I, and I don't listen to a huge amount, but I haven't noticed this with the American ones, it's all kind of like, um, yeah, we have the Patreon, but please, of course, don't ever not listen because with the Irish ones are like, I notice some of you are like texting in all the time and yet you're not paying the Patreon. <laughs> so what we've started doing is we're doing extra episodes for the people who are on the Patreon. So, oh, sorry, I hate that. You know, we're talking about something when you weren't there. So <laughs> maybe Irish people are more like, here, pay up. Pay the wicker, man. But the, sorry, my point was, uh, apparently the new thing is if you expect people to pay, you have to have something special so they can go to everybody else and go, you don't get the extra bit, yeah. you weren't there. A bit like when you're at a party and everyone's chatting away and they're being polite to you, kind of, but like they're just guffawing away about their time yeah. in college and you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, so here's the podcast and here's the podcast naked myself and the Don that only subscribers can get. Even though it's That's our OnlyFans show. <laughs> That's it's just audio. Well, also, I made a decision not to do advertising and I had a few, what could best be described as tacit approaches uh, for advertising of the order of, you know, a couple of hundred bucks an episode. I just went, I, like, I'm kind of, nah. Like, one of the problems with podcasting is it kind of grew out of radio making a bollocks of itself with advertising where, you know, eight minutes of every hour is some rubbish advertising. Plus the sort of hunger that there is out there for long form. I'll stop wobbling about the podcast. <laughs> that could have taken my eye out. I know. Um, I was sitting there looking to him when he stopped jiggling his fucking leg. <laughs> So, okay, yeah, anyway, that's the Patreon thing. So we were kind of, <laughs> this is all, this is all live on air. Um, what you heard was an explo- a cork exploding out of a Prosecco bottle uh, or champagne bottle. Can't work out which it is. No, yet. it is Prosecco. We didn't need to rat us out about that. Uh, we're, this is the podcast on going off the booze for a month, uh, myself and the Don. Uh, me more probably vociferously than her, but we were going to celebrate uh, with a bottle of Prosecco, which I had standing by, and I'd taken the metal lid off that I could seamlessly and uh, effortlessly and very suavely, in, in, in a very debonair fashion, open the bottle. And then while we were t- talking bollocks about Patreon, the whole thing just blew off the top. Nothing, it didn't foam over in a kind of a Formula One motor racing kind of way and smear itself all over myself and the Don's T-shirts. But uh, we will pour it. Um 
I'm not expecting this kind of shit at the weekend. Like, this is what it's like to have a little boy. That any time you enter a room or you walk around a corner, you'll have a small child jump at you and frighten the shit out of you. But I expect to be able to relax at the weekends. I was not expecting that. Um, So the bottle of Prosecco here is 7.9 units. Here, let's just (coughs) cheers. 7.9 units of alcohol. And... um, How many do we get through a week? I guess that means that we have... Four glasses, so it's two units a glass, roughly. And I have, you know, a bottle of a, bo- a pint of beer. I think is a unit or two. But I don't know why you're counting by glasses because I just think how many's in the bottle? Seven point nine. Right, there's no way we're not finishing that bottle as no, well no. as so. Like, let's just count the bottle between us yeah, and go yeah. it a fucking day. So you're you're only supposed to have fifteen units a week if you're healthy. Most of my life, I have been. And I tell doctors this. I sit down and go, yeah, how much do you drink? And I go, probably about 70 units. And they go, no, 17 units. I said, 70. And everyone's, oh, that's, that's probably undercounting it, you know. Possibly, not intentionally, but you know yourself, you forget. But a couple of years ago, I went off the, I went off beer and lost quite a lot of weight, by the way. Any fatties listening? <laughs> if you stop drinking beer and stop eating bread, you will definitely lose weight. But, um, you know, back in the days when I'd go out drinking beer, I'd go out on Friday night and I'd have like six or seven pints and then I'd have probably JDs and Coke, three or four. I'd go out on Saturday, might go out in the afternoon watching football. By the time midnight on Saturday comes out, I'd probably had about eight to ten pints. Sunday, a couple of, you know, a bottle of wine maybe with a bit of brunch or something. Not drink on Monday, not drink on Tuesday, Wednesday, a bit of a goo. You know, so it's very yeah. easy to get up to 70. I mean, it, it, it varies by country because the UK always had a slightly different one to us. And then I think it's kind of become, so it varies differently. And then some of them have a higher one for men and women. And then more recently, they've said, no, they should have the same amount. I don't fucking know. That doesn't make sense to me that men and women should be the same amount. I mean, in generally speaking, if lots of women's husbands might be a third bigger than them, yeah, it big, stands to fucking reason. If you're married, if your wife's a big unit, then... <laughs> Yeah, but like generally speaking, if if your husband's bigger than you, or even if he's not that much bigger than you, but in terms of muscle mass, yeah, the equivalent. Even on the male front, there's, there's always these kind of, the, the bigger they are, the harder they're full. There's a lot of guys I know are big units and they can't t- take it. And then you see the little Alex yeah. Higgins amphetamine up. because they're sticking it up skinny, in the toilet. <laughs> yeah, jaundiced, you know one kidney guy and he can just keep going all night. Yeah, and, yeah. And he's 17, you know. That's called stamina, Sean. Yeah, but it's also the, you know you can either drink or you can't drink. It's also the, the well, no, that ch- it changes. That changes throughout your life because and I'm thinking there as you're adding up my y- your units and that I'm going right. Monday, not sure I'll be hungover anyway, and it'll be like this bang of Monday off Monday, and this uniforms to be washed. You usually drink once during the week, usually. Well, now see, let's be remember if we're going to be honest with ourselves. Now things yeah. have changed this year because of lockdown. It changed all of my habits, which was not for the best, I'd say. But then also in trying to get back onto things, even just my schedule has changed. But up up until before lockdown, we were at the stage now where Monday and Tuesday, Tuesday I wasn't drinking. During lockdown, Tuesday drinking started because she had the quiz on Tuesday. Yeah. But Wednesday was wine night. Mammy came home. My mother, like I, I live with my mother during the week and she works at night. But Wednesday, she's like, I don't have any clients. I'm not working at night. It's hump day. Like You've gone over most of the week. I'll bang on pizzas and not bother my whole dinner, proper dinner. And they'll be a bottle of wine. But like, let's be honest, there'll be two bottles of wine out. And mm. um, you know there there have been moments where we're ha- we're healing the world and we're going back over stuff from twenty years ago and hugging and all that the shit. So the Bacardi comes out and then it's it's dodgy it's dodgy territory from there. So like Wednesday there'd be drinks had now Thursday would have been I'd come over to you. I'm not going to get hammered because I have to get up in the morning. But there'd be a few drinks had. We might have a bottle of wine with whatever we're eating. Friday, fuck it. 
all Ben Bruce knocked out of the park. Yeah. Friday is just, there's all sorts going on on Friday. Particularly, even if we're not going out, Friday is just, we're going to make an absolute wreck of ourselves. Saturday, sometimes we might get up and go into town. But by three o'clock, we'll be having a bit of wine with our meal after we've gone to some theatre and we've gone for a walk and we feel better about ourselves. But we'll keep drinking until two in the morning. Then Sunday, yeah, we might, we probably have, we have to dust ourselves off, get in the shower because we've got a brunch to go to. Mm. And again, won't go mad late on Sunday night because I have to be up in the morning, but there'll be plenty ads. So that's kind of, that was generally my week before lockdown. Now with lockdown, I went, oh, I did lose the run of myself. I did. I lost the absolute run of myself. And now I'm like, hmm. At the start, but you, you're going to rein it in a bit. No, I did. I did rein it in. I did, I did like stop with the midweek drinking. Although like there'll still usually be, sometimes it's Thursday now, but there'll still be like one day in the yeah. week where like I'll have a lot of wine with my mom and just hang out with her and stuff. Still though, I'm now at the point where I'm like, oof. Because I despise this going on. I respect what you do when you go on the dry twice a year. I fucking despise it. Like, but now I'm like, no, you actually need to go on a dry it. <laughs> there's that aspect as well yeah. where like if you're pouring in bottle and bottle and upon bottle of wine on top of whatever else you're consuming I'm now at the point where I'm like much as per your beer thing I'm like you might you might have to like just go off the booze for a few weeks too and see how you get on yeah, so I were today like roughly I'm on you know a 750 milliliter bottle of whiskey a week and a 750 milliliter bottle of vodka a week and so it might be a third gin, a third whiskey, a third vodka. I mean, roughly that. It's a litre and a half of spirits and about two bottles of wine, maybe three. So that's another, you know, litre and a half. So that's three litres of alcohol uh, a week. I mean, you know, that that's tut tut. It's a lot. So, yeah, I took a decision when I was probably 17. I've said this in the podcast before. I decided not to do any drugs, not to get married or have children and to go off the booze once a month and probably around 30 30 in my early 30s i made that two months a year middle of jan to middle of feb and middle of september to middle of october and i've stuck with it and it's amazing how people a lot of people have said oh i, I want to do that and they try and come with me on it and they just can't it's like there's this collusion thing that when everybody goes no you're dead right i'm going to do that too especially when you used to do it like the end of january yeah. like you know you, t- you taper off but now i'm doing the post christmas go off for a month Everybody would go, I want to do it too. And you go, you don't have to, it's fine. I just, I'm not drinking. And then, no, 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 we're definitely going to do it too. And then something would come up, but something would always come up. And they go, actually, you have to. You have to. And it's almost like I've invited myself into your thing that you've been doing and I'm going to cheapen it. And I expect you to collude with me while I feel better about the fact that I'm now breaking it. If you applied it to a diet, it'd be like, listen, if you want to diet with me, that's fine. But piss off buying me a chipper and trying to make you feel better about it. So anyone who wants to sort of try it, the, the tips I can give you are what the Don said. First of all, something is always going to come up where you're going to want to drink. You know, my, your, your friend has just come out of having his stomach cancer treatment and he, he, he's having a celebration or his liver has been removed and he wants to get back on the sauce as quickly as possible or a party with free booze or you know a football match that you know, everyone is going to be there mm. so you have to just go right over this month or so there is going to be something that I'm going to want to drink at the second tip is to start on a Monday and then commit to three weekends and then allow yourself go back after that third weekend on whatever day you choose a minimum of about 23 or 4 days if you can but if you want to go the full extra week and you can definitely go back on the Friday so you do Monday to Sunday Monday to Sunday Monday to Sunday and then you can go back on the following Monday Tuesday, Wednesday Thursday and Friday good tip as well also drink sparkling water don't drink 
uh, low alcohol beers or any of that crap because a they're they're not flushing your system out because they're full of shit as well. If you're at a party, try and get a bottle of Perrier and just walk around holding the bottle. It's kind of easier than just a glass of water. But it 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 gets easier the longer you go on. So the first week is hard, second week is harder, and then it gets easy. And then by the by the end, you could you're, you're sort of in a habit of not drinking, and you could probably stay out for longer if you wanted to. And the reason I did it was I, I, I know an awful lot of my friends in their 40s who decided they had to give up the booze because they just couldn't, they were, it was either getting out of control or they just weren't able to drink as much or it was affecting their careers or whatever. And, you know, luckily in many of the jobs I was in, especially when I was in Asia, drinking was sort of part of the contract you signed, especially working for people like Pat Brett, whose birthday, he was 65 yesterday. Happy birthday, Pat. Former guest on a pint with Shawnee B. Uh, but yeah, we have that, we have that sort of, Drinking, like we're 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 ba- basically in the mid. As we said in the last podcast, we're on the cusp of a second outbreak here in Ireland. Uh, Dublin figures are starting to go up by about two hundred a day for the last ten days. But we're opening the pubs next week, you know. Which is- yeah, but I mean, the the uproar about. I mean, I realise that we've had pubs open, but we've had these kind of weird rules, which are kind of a pain in the hole. But you see why they're there, which is that you have to have food. It's to make it awkward so people can't have a big night out. We're now looking at the wet pubs, so being all pubs get to open, and I think they have to close early ish. But it's back to pubs being open. And all over the Late Bait Show, all over the news, everyone was talking about the poor old lads that can't get out for their social point and taking pictures. They took a picture of some old man. He had a little alarm clock in front of his pint with his lunch and everyone went, oh my God, how sad. Now he actually came out and said, I just wanted to get home for the six o'clock news, but thanks very much. And I get that. And I know that like it is part of Irish culture, particularly rural, that there's a lot of older men particularly that their only social outlet is to go for a pint. But I'm also going... They haven't actually changed the restrictions in maternity hospitals. A woman going in for her scans, for her big scans, who may be getting horrible news, who may be miscarrying, who may have anything, she can't have a partner in with her. She goes into labour. She's not getting her, like her husband can't go in there. He can come in towards the end of the birth. Mina may not make it for the birth, but aside from him actually getting to witness the birth of his child, she has no support. And it's the most horrific. Secret, of course, is just don't have children. Well, but what I will rope that back to is while I don't get sober as often as you do, I have spent probably more of my life sober than you have yeah. <laughs> I do no I do it in nine month spans <laughs> yes um, so and the other thing that you may have heard the Don say was this term wet pubs which is which has become a thing in Ireland now so they, they we opened I guess dry pubs or food pubs pubs where you had that had a restaurant attached to them opened about early July and the wet pubs have been refused opening until next week Although I can still see it being delayed further because of the way the numbers are. But yeah, wet pubs, moist yeah. pubs. It's just, you know. But uh, that's the, I get that picture. Like, I know I've come up with the term, but when I hear wet pub, I see this dingy, smelly bar. The carpet's a bit fucking damp and pissy and. Ugh. What happens if a wet pub serves dry roast to peanuts? Mm. Never, ever touch the peanuts. Does that negate the problem? So yeah, we have a, we have a, uh, a reputation, let's put it, as being amongst the biggest drinkers in the world and we export our pubs and our publicans are freaking out with the fact that they haven't been able to open. Although we, you know, one of the problems with Ireland is we have too many pubs. You know, in in small towns, it'd be a far better setup if there were, instead of 10 pubs in this town, there were only three because you get better atmosphere now. Having 10 now with COVID is probably a good thing, but we did have too many pubs and also pubs have got filthy expensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I mean, on that point, I see what you're saying, but 
during, I don't know if it was during the lockdown, but certainly during this whole COVID thing, Weatherspoons, the big English company, have invested, I could be wrong, I think it's 12 million in Ireland, which means... Yeah, so they're where lots of small pubs are going to just close up shop and their family run pubs for a long time. Fucking Weatherspoons is going to come in. For overseas listeners, Weatherspoons is a bit like if you crossed McDonald's with a pub, you get like digital menus and you type them in and, and they only have one of each spirit and one of each beer and it's all horrible. Um, and quite why they thought they could come into Ireland and... I have no idea. But, uh, you know, to the point about the expense, we're having a two glasses of Prosecco that come from probably Lidl and the bottle probably cost about eight euros. Each glass would cost eight euros in a pub. And, yeah, I can understand, oh, yeah, the conviviality of being in a pub. and the, But, you know, I'm quite happy sitting out in the balcony in the sun with a, you know, buy one, get one, get three free, get four free. <laughs> but then again it depends what home is like doesn't it that's true that's true I mean uh, it's about the person a lot of people need to get out yeah and, as you said the old men and the, the old widowed farmers who they, they usually go down to the pub at opening ten, time around lunchtime and they sit there for the afternoon with their friends doing crosswords and watching horse racing and they probably leave about six and go home for their dinner to watch the listen to the Angelus and watch the news the Angelus has got a makeover the Angelus <laughs> explain the Angelus so the the Angelus is a uniquely Irish thing, still going. We're, those overseas probably, probably know, many of you know, that Ireland is an extremely Catholic country, although we're doing our very, very, very best. No, we're really not. Down. It's just this and weird hangover now. It's dying on its arse at the moment. Um, and, and quite rightly, as more and more people, I think, start to realise that there is no God, uh, which is difficult for people because God gives you huge solace and it gives you huge uh, reason to live and the idea that there's an afterlife and you can all meet again in some sylvian plain is, is, what, is, is what keeps a lot of people going but you know most people i think oh that's not really well, certainly not the certainly not the religions that we're all kind of the, the world is following now science has really taken over them and it's all a bit juju and it's all a bit hysterical anyway the angela's is every midday and six o'clock in Ireland, you were meant to say a decade of the rosary. It's 12 uh, prayers. Um, the first is the Our Father, which is the Lord's Prayer, also known as. And then you follow up with uh, 10 Hail Marys repetitively, one after the other. And then you finish with a Glory Be to the Father. And you say that, and it's meant to take a minute. Anyway, all the bells go off in Ireland. No, but what about that? There's the, the angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. <laughs> Remember that? And she can see the whole thing. What is that? <laughs> That's the Angelus. Okay, and you're meant to back... Anyway, here's the, it's, a, it's like a fucking Catholic call to prayer, all right? So yeah. if you're Islamic listening to this, you know, you have five times a day, you've got to go down and face Mecca on your knees and do whatever you do, sing the Quran or whatever, chant it. Catholic Ireland has a sort of a, a bong, a, the bells go off. Yeah. So the bells go off at 12 o'clock, bong, and the whole country kind of... Stop. So all the radio stations, well, not all the radio stations, the main national radio station pauses, as they say, for the Angelus. And you just hear a minute of bells. And the same thing happens at six o'clock. Bong, bong. And on television, they have, they used to have usually a picture of Mary holding the infant baby in front of the Magi going, no, see, I did, see what I did. Yeah, it got a makeover in the early 2000s. So, like, I mean, I suppose it's one of these things that Ireland was traditionally very Catholic and it's an it's an aspect of Catholicism. And so we all grew up going to Catholic schools and you're 
lining up in the schoolyard to go into your relevant classrooms. The teacher comes in, the school day starts, everyone has to stand up and bless themselves and you'll have the prayer at the start. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's 12 o'clock and everyone goes right to the Andrus. But the Andrus at 12 o'clock is different because in principal would get on the intercom. So the entire school would be standing for the Andrus at the same time. Yeah. And handily, once the Andrus is over, you're just after 12. And in my school, it was half 12 was lunch. So between 12 and half 12 was the time you did religion. Mm-hmm. And then at half 12, well, you'd have to say a prayer before you eat your lunch as well. And sorry, little break was at, at five to 11. And you'd have to say a prayer before you had your snack as well. And then at the end of the day, before you go home, she'd have to say a prayer before you go home and put the chairs up on the table. So this was just everyone, even if you weren't religious, even if you didn't go to mass every week, this was like it's weaved into society. You go home, people have the dinner, whatever, you stick on the news. The news is actually called the 6-1 news because yeah. the Andrews is on at six o'clock. The news is after that. But it got a facelift in like, I think it was the early 2000s. And I remember pissing myself laughing watching it. It was kind of nobody needed the Angelus anymore. And there was talk of why is that still there? And people were going, because this is Ireland, it's a Catholic country. And so it was uproar. You can't take the Angelus away. So what they tried to do is to make it more secular. It still goes bong. But they tried to make it more kind of, so they'd get like hippies in, in a forest. Yeah. It was, and there was, you know, there was a guy making a, you know, it was meant Bridget's to be, crosses and weaving or, or, baskets or, 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 or and or shit. Sandcastles. Yeah. Anyway, it was all meant to be like, a moment of contemplation because yeah. let's face it we all know you're losing your religion that's you in the corner <laughs> losing, <laughs> losing your religion as a rate of knots so they're, quite, they're trying to keep it as a moment of contemplation and now during lockdown they have this new Angelus which is like they have that's one with, CGI with, on one of them they have, yeah they have one with like these little they, they, they look like they're Pokemon right well, there's one like looks like Pokemon there's another one who it's a little boy and he's walking through a forest Bong. and he sees an oak tree and he walks beside the oak tree Bong. and he bends down and he picks up one of those what do you call those little whirly oak trees I don't tree. know what the whirly things yeah. are yeah the seeds of the oak tree Bong. and he looks up to the sky and he throws the little oak tree spinning seed into the sky Bong. <laughs> and then he puts out his hand And the little whirling oak tree seed comes and lands in his hand and close up. And then you pull back to find that it's the same boy now all grown up. (laughs) How profound. Something to do with the eternalness of life. Yeah, they're really like... And then he looks up to the sky again. And then it ends, fades out. Now the six one. Is. But it's not, it's, I, I don't like that they've departed to do. Like, they're doing a different one every day, but one person gets the whole thing. Whereas it was twenty years ago when they were trying to be all modern, you'd have at least ten people or sets of people in one set of the Andrews. And for each bong, you'd have a person like weaving their basket and then a bong, and they'd suddenly like jump and look up at the sky, really fucking shocked. So I think they should do a sort of a house music version of the Andrews. Yeah. So you can start it, but like in the background, the angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. Anyone listening who's responsible for the Angelus, there's your next move. You know, you're doing a grand job dragging the country, kicking and screaming out of the church. The churches, of course, we've had goes at as well because there we do have a huge number of churches like pubs in this country and you know it's time that they were repurposed they're, they they need to perhaps be a little bit more jesus oh did you not hear the very sad news early on this week the lads from the archdiocese of dublin 
wanted us all to know that they're actually in dire straits because Band. well they probably got into them as well but they're a bit young sort of a bit older than them now um that's my go to carry on <laughs> yeah no they're it, it, it's times are really tough because the pandemic has you know really affects their income i mean i read this and i was shocked i was horrified i thought of that lovely priest down the road for me and went no is he struggling oh god no couldn't be couldn't be that's that's dreadful i'm gonna run down and piss off so because they haven't got the two collections in catholic mass you've got the share collection and then you've got the priest's collection basically everybody learns the priest's whiskey collection yeah so the first collection the plate the basket goes around the first collection is for the priests and the it's kind of the salaries it's the diocese money the second collection is the share collection and that's where they pay for all the lawyers for the pedophile priests yeah. so you'll notice that the share collection they, they obviously couldn't call it the pedophile yeah they, the share collection was always collection. the big one but all of a sudden in the late 90s everyone you'd hear whispers throughout the church I'm not put all your money into the first collection page I don't pay into the second one because somehow that's better but that was, that was a big thing when like the first reports were coming out yeah I mean when I say repurposing the church I don't mean you know knocking them down wholesale I mean I mean things like Let's create sections of the big churches where the homeless people like what? What would Jesus do if we have a big homeless problem? Let Let's create some showers and some little mm. rooms where the homeless can stay till eight in the morning, nine in the morning, if they're really stuck. What Jesus would agree to? You know, we, we talked about religion a lot in this before, so we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But you know, we we do even as an atheist, you do need to kind of understand. I think that you can't just get rid of all religions because they kind of keep the world on a straight and narrow. We but, have to try and I mean, work towards something more more humane and more humanity-driven. On that front, my local parish church was built just a little bit before I was born. But what they, what they had was, you had the altar, and so the theme was in a shape of a cross. You had the altar, and you had the main body of the church, and then you had behind the altar, and then you had each side. But you could divide off the altar, and the altar would be gone, and nobody could use that, but it was a community centre. And the idea being that you'd have different groups for AA, funny enough, to topic we're talking about, but at whatever, that the community would be able to use it. Bit by bit, certain priests came in and just decided to fuck around with it and change it. And it became, it's not even a fancy church now, but literally an awful lot of money was put into that. The community had a huge input into that. And it just got fucked back in their faces. And all of these people were really taking part in the parish. And it had been decided, this is how we're going to make sure the families that aren't doing well, we're going to have smaller spaces that we can afford to heat. And on Saturday and Sunday... The room dividers came back, and you have a nice big church. But that it was—it was that it would be there for the community, and they could see what they could do. And that literally just got fucked back in their faces. Well, I mean, most of the schools in Ireland have a church attached to them. Why are they not repurposing for social distancing? They can put three classrooms into a church, you know. Mm. Or you could convert churches into pubs. Yeah, I'm, you know, or wine bar. Old wine bar. So I was going to say more tapas yeah. and wine. Bread and wine bars. Tapas. <laughs> Crustini. <laughs> <laughs> The Roman body, tapas bars. The body of Christ cocktail. <laughs> the Bloody Mary. <laughs> oh dear. All right. Anyway, we're going to have a crack at um, going off the booze. So as I said to the Don today on our walk, if you think about it, Don, it's only your, it's only one podcast. So you're on the booze this podcast. You'd be off the booze next podcast and you'd be back on the following one. As ever, the Dawn is here to um, unveil number five in her top 20 countdown. We got a good response last week to the Irish ventriloquist Shorsha O'Wheel, my father. Um, people found it extremely amusing to listen to me talking to a ger- uh, ventriloquist and his dummy on an audio podcast. Anyway, uh, she's here today. As ever, she asks me, th- gives me three clues to see if I can recognize who it was I was talking to over the past four, nearly five years now. Okay, uh, first one is a quote. How it is 
everybody has that emptiness. Everybody has feelings of negativity, but not everybody makes that jump to there's something not right, there's something that's not working, and then dealing with that. Mm. I'm sensing that you're uh, leaning into today's theme of drinking. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with Craig. Yes. Oh, is that the first time I've got it right first go? That is, I think that's the first time you got it on the first go. Okay, Craig Smith. If I was doing a top twenty, this would be in my in my top five. I think uh, it was it was early enough in the series um, when I wasn't sure how long it was going to last, and I was it was around the time when I was talking to a lot more advertising people mm. than I ended up talking to because I wanted to widen the aperture. Craig Smith is a guy from Sheffield who would have been considered one of the great art directors of the. 90s and 2000s and indeed today still working working away with and Craig got into a big hole uh, he got, a, got into a big alcohol and drug related hole primarily in Hong Kong uh, but also in Singapore and it kept with him when he went to America and he's been, he struggled for I guess the best part of two decades very open guy very friendly very caring and kind man who you know as you'd say the drink just didn't suit him or the drugs just didn't suit him or whatever else I mean, I had some scary-ish moments with him when I was very worried about him, as did uh, some many of his friends. And he wasn't—he wasn't a bad way. But it is a redemption story. He—he's extraordinarily honest in this uh, podcast. He brings everything to the table. If any of you who are listening have kind of tapped into this podcast, it's interesting. There's, there's been a few people who've had addiction problems and those podcasts tend to attract an awful lot of people because there's a lot of people mm. online searching for answers and Craig kind of I think instinctively understood that and you know I was astonished at how open and candid he was and he said that you know his goal in life is to maybe if one person help if he, if he helps one person with his honesty because so much of it's buried right you know so much of it's yeah hidden. joking aside we do mess and even today we've kind of messed mm. and, we, and we and we make light of it and that's okay but there is a conversation to be had about our relationship with alcohol or drugs or whatever substances and I would have a particularly addictive personality I tend to be called a cross addict as in if I gave up one thing it'll turn onto the other for me I just kind of have to manage and year by year take inventory and decide "Mm, this isn't working you need to get your shit together so I, I don't proclaim to know everything but I do know that there's kind of a narrative out there of people who are Roaring alcoholics, people who are drinking away and isn't it great fun and gin o'clock and all that kind of thing. And then there's the full on redemption story, how I got sober and how you should too. And what I found really interesting about Craig's conversation is obviously it was, it was extremely generous with how he shared his own journey and, and, and not just his own journey in terms of the steps and all that kind of crap, but like his own personal stuff. Yeah, sometimes there's a line in the sand, but I think most of us have to, we lose the run of ourselves and we have to kind of watch how am I treating myself? Um, is something becoming a problem for me? If it is, what do I need to do about that? And I found it a really, really helpful one. It was less preachy. I think there was a lot that was interesting and there's a lot that he would say himself, look, this is for me personally. I've gotten to know myself and this is what is going on for me and this is what I need to look at. But I've, I found that much more interesting so that, you know, you don't have to be someone who's going to say, yeah, I'm in big trouble. But you might go, now he's got something there that I could possibly have a look at. I could probably do with having a look at that, checking in with myself. So I found it really, his integrity, always integrity impresses me. Uh, he was extremely generous with his own personal stuff. 
but there's something there for an awful lot of people that mm, he's a bit of wisdom there that we could I think most of us if we're honest whether it be food drugs whatever most of us probably need to rein it in on some stuff and he's got some really interesting points on that so we were two people who when we went out drinking together we used to just have great chemistry yeah we were big drinkers and we could drink all night and we keep going and we wanted to party and have fun and laugh and all that sort of stuff and then there was that bit and I mean this is I've had this you know there's other friends of mine like Shane people have gone it, it, if you go when I, when you go off the booze, if you go off the booze for a month, you will and you go out with your friends, you will notice how fucking boring and inane and mm. asinine your friends are when they're drunk. Okay, it's okay for eight people to get drunk together, and you're you're all sparky. But if you're the sober person, the conversations start repeating. They're not that funny. People are getting messy. I know a lot of people who are, who, they have to kind of burn those friends. Because I, I remember one time in, in a New York bar, myself and Craig met up after a while without seeing each other. And he was on, he was dry. And he said, oh, we meet in the, we meet in the Irish bar. And I said, no, no we meet in the cafes. And like, I understand from his point of view, no, no, boy, we're meeting in a, in a bar. And then we got into the bar and I was kind of drinking soda water. And he was going, no, have a pint, have a pint. And I'm going, and then he said, sure, I'll have a pint with you. And I'm going, no, you definitely won't do that. And like, it, it was very awkward. Now, yeah. was, and this is two guys who know each other really well. And I said, yeah. like, I don't want you sitting here and me being the reason why you yeah, end exactly. up falling off the wagon again. And, and, and um, Something I wanted to ask you that just kind of got thrown up. I mean, because what I know of you is, I think everyone knows, you know, you're a big boo sound and that's all. But I, I know you actually don't have an addictive personality at all. But you live a particular lifestyle, which is fine. But you're actually very lucky that you don't have an addictive personality and... Well, I, I would dispute that. I, I would think my, my addictive personality is held in check by decisions like, uh, I mean, I only did drugs for the first time in the last five years, four years of my life. I When I kind of, my career kind of stopped, I certainly didn't, didn't do it when I was working because I, I felt it would impact yeah. on my career. But when I did, I went, thank God I didn't do that when I was 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Yeah, but obviously like you and I know each other really well. My so. boozing is also held in check by those two months. Yeah, but that's that's that would never hold it in check for someone like me. So that's no, why I'm that's why I'm saying that it's not it's not that you don't have to watch it. And I think that you make like you you enjoy a bit of gambling, but you make strict rules and go, okay, well, yeah. my money is my money for the month, so you're not chasing it, which is intelligent. Mm. But I personally like I can sit there and pick a horse there, and I go, yeah, I'll pick a nice horse. The Don won two races in a yeah. row with the courage. But I will never ever gamble because I would be fucking destroyed, and I know I would be that mm. person. And that's like my life has shown me mm. consistently. It does not matter. I will find something, whether it be an eating disorder that nearly killed me funny enough the only time aside from being pregnant the only time I stopped drinking was because I had an eating disorder and I couldn't afford the calories <laughs> like but then I nearly killed myself with that so I'm aware that that's in me but I'd say even when you're kind of being a glutton and saying right let, let's get hammered and even at that you're in much more control than I am I think there have been times this year when I've kind of looked at things and gone this isn't great bit concerned about myself now and if I hadn't the experience I had of all the other things I'd go Alcohol is a problem. I need to not be only talk be a drink around alcoholic. I do honestly think I've been around the track enough to know this is an innate problem with me and it will apply to each thing. But there have been moments, particularly with lockdown and how things slip, where I've gone, this is a worry now. Starting to worry. This is not good. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm a happy drunk. I don't tend to be difficult. Thank God. But th- like, I don't have the same control. Yeah. Um, but again, I would, I so would I, say so, this Sorry, my, my original question had been, so knowing that you're somebody who is like you enjoy a good time, you, that's that you enjoy that lifestyle. But you're kind of you're you're well able to look after yourself and you feel safe in that. Do you worry about leading other people astray? Um, so a couple of things to unpack there. One is your 
two generations, 20 years behind me. Okay, so when you get to 50 and 52, the body can't do as much as it was well, mm. once it was able. But more importantly, I think you realize, like you take gambling, right? If gambling worked, like think about the amount of gambling that goes on. Football, mm. poker, horse racing, everything. If gambling worked, there would be kind of colleges on how, you know, <laughs> people would be... There actually you know, are. They're ca- card counters and they get bored from no, Vegas. No, but like that, that doesn't even fully work because they can put more cards in the deck and it's too... Yeah, good. but I mean, generally, but, we all know gambling is a bad idea. But, but, but you know, playing the stock market is very similar to gambling, except it's a sort of a licensed version. Yeah, you know, gambling yeah. Gambling is licensed yeah. too. But yet the promise of the stock market and gambling is the big win. The promise is, it's, or the lottery, the promise is all my troubles can go away. Now, there is absolutely no way, unless you are extremely lucky, um, that you are going to make any money. Yeah. All of gambling, is not, it's not rigged. It just doesn't work. It's no, all... but look, we all know at this stage, we're long enough in the tooth, but my thing that I cop straight away, because I'm like with gambling, I always, always brought up to think that anybody who even plays the lottery is just bad and you stay away from them. It starts with a penny and it ends up... But then I saw you gamble quite a bit. But I noticed straight away you have this thing and I figured this is kind of like how other people pay for the gym or whatever yeah. hobby or if, if I, like I'm a girl, if I don't actually, but if I did go and get my nails done every month and my hair dyed, this is your thing. You have a certain amount that you pay each month and you're willing to lose it. You expect to lose it. Great if you get it back, you get a bonus, but it's a hobby because you well, enjoy watching sports. Because, you know, most of the people who emerge from gyms after two months membership don't end yeah. up coming out looking like chisels. But you go into it planning to spend that money. Adonises. You're so, spending the money on the on the entertainment yeah, you're going to get. Yeah, so from it. it's entertainment. Then let's just move on to drinking. Uh, drinking is entertainment too. Drinking can get similarly out of control, where it becomes something else, and that's when it starts getting sinister. So drinking to forget, drinking to numb your mind, drinking to because you're depressed, drinking because you're angry, drinking because you're sad, drinking because you're oh you're 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 constantly chasing something that people, I think something people overlook a lot of the time is that I think we know about like the drinking because you're maybe some people some people are shy and they drink yeah. to kind of open up. But there's a, that's a I think that's a very simplistic thing. Like I know I I enjoy drinking. I drink for a good time, all that kind of thing. But I've noticed there's you know the odd time where you go, you know, you got a bit hammered that night now and like I'm I'm granted that I don't fall out with people. I'm lucky in that way I'd be in serious trouble if I was an archie drunk. But there's the time when I go, Jesus, I, I got a bit too pissed there. And I noticed they are always the nights when I felt deeply uncomfortable with people. And rather than like, I don't want to fall out with someone, but I, when I find somebody is won't back off or when I find people are, when I find myself really attacked and feeling unsafe, I tend to drink faster. And what happens when, like, cause like I have autism. So one of my features is that I tend to talk really fast and I have to count to talk slower. But when I feel this someone's... This podcast has slowed down by point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I consciously do it. But when I feel attacked, even particularly if it's someone who I don't feel dislikes me and I don't want to fall out with them, but I feel I need them to back off. Some people are a bit much for me in that way. And when I feel corrected or attacked or in some way unsafe, I tend to drink faster. I notice I'm getting pissed. And what happens is I then lose the ability to slow down my speech or to, or to calm down and kind of go, people can't understand what you're going on about. Like, let's keep this simple. They don't live in your head. So it all turns into gobbledygook. But it's actually not gobbledygook. I know exactly what I'm talking about. It's quite clear. And I throw in the odd phrase and the people around the table who are pretending to be clever hear that there's something there and they're just not grasping at all. And I particularly realise that from going off the drink and going back on it, that I miss that when I can't drink, that it's a shield. 
that basically yeah, people, I, people I, back I, off without me having to fight with them they back off and go I actually yeah, don't get they, her they kind of back, I've been with you they back off thinking you're a bit of a fucking Egypt which is so. what I want I know but, but that's like, what I want I know but that's because what, what I want is to not have to fight with someone the night for everyone I know but the thing know? is I want to cry a lot right. of the time I want to cry and I don't want to fight with someone but I desperately want them to piss off and when I kind of lose the inhibition to be able to mask and to be normal Suddenly they just back off and they go, I don't, I don't get her at all. And that's exactly what I want, but there's no fight. Anyway, to answer your question, do I lead people astray? I think when we first met four years ago, you came at me with, I can drink just as much as you. And we've now had to t- tone that back because it was getting a bit out of control. And you now take Yeah, I used to be, no, I used to be a lot different with my drinking. I mean, I think the one thing overriding your question across whatever vice, including religion, by the way, you want to try and level at it is being self-aware of when you need to, as you say, rein yourself in and also not using the thing. You know, two of my, or three horses come in second and I'm, I'm so close and they're all beaten and then I go, okay, I'm going to put a hundred on this one. That's when you, that's when yeah. it falls out of control or I'm going to have this whole bottle of whiskey tonight because I'm sad because my boyfriend left me. Yeah, I mean, like on the gambling thing, you go, at that point you go, Look, at, look at, there's nothing wrong with putting a few quid on a horse but you're not someone who can do it, it doesn't suit you so mm. maybe you just need to not do it. And so to your gym membership point, I, I do gamble 50 quid a week, uh, roughly. And but you've chosen have, to spend that and you wear that. And I have been in the red, because I've started keeping a record of it, mm. so I've been in the red for the last four years. I have never f- finished a year in profit, okay? Yeah. So you then look at it over four years and you go, all right, so this is not a way of making money. This is a way of enjoying a particularly when I was in America I can't, can't stand basketball or baseball and there'd be a baseball game on I'd be watching that but if I have a fiver on yeah. one of the teams it makes it it's far interesting. more interesting right? but the other side to that is I am quite conscious now of people because I've noticed that when a lot of my friends who are married and I'm not married and I don't you know we don't live together but they use me as a reason to get out yeah. and also when they get out they're not conditioned right? good time showing they're coming out at 50 thinking they're 25 again they're probably coming out of a marriage of 25 years going, I wouldn't mind being able to show off my dance moves. I wouldn't, you know I mean? Yeah, you're a good and time showing and you have to babysit them. They do. I, you end up babysitting. And some, and many of them will come out, we'll usually go for dinner or lunch and we'll be drinking wine and they'll be going, no, I'd better see it. And by like the end of dinner, they're absolutely toast. And by two hours into the next pub, they're fucking falling down, drunk, possibly getting sick in the toilet and pulling their pants up and putting them on a bus home or a taxi. So I do look out for those people. Because yeah, I know. I mean, there's been one or two times that I've got been so drunk, I've been collapsed, you know, collapsing. But like, I'm yeah. not like vomiting or I'm not like, you know, lying under a tree. You know, no, a handful like, you know. of times have you been like that you needed minding. Yeah, I collapse on the bed when I get home, but I'm staggering home. Yeah. Yeah. But a handful rare, of times rare, I was like minding. So, you know, again, you go, you know, what do I like about drinking? I like... I like sitting down watching stuff on television with a drink. I like having dinner in a restaurant with a drink. I like going out and meeting friends outside, usually, you know, on a sunny afternoon and having some wine. I don't like going to nightclubs and getting absolutely plastered and doing shots and all that kind of stuff, right? Because I'm 52 and I shouldn't be doing yeah. that. But, and I didn't even like that really much. Well, back I, say, in the I don't day. like that. Yeah. And I didn't like that. Having a drink, I love the social aspect of, you know, you go, you go for a meal, it's less still. Did you like the first glass of wine? Everyone's just a little bit more chill. And, you know, I like that. But the reality is, I also have a lot of mental health stuff going on and I also have to live a life where I'm autistic and everybody around me, most people are not. And that makes things very hard one glass wine in everyone's kind of warmed up and you're not feeling self-conscious it's just chill okay but when you attach that to my mental health issues and the other stuff that's going on I can tell myself that that's that's a really healthy way to enjoy alcohol and it can be 
But there's a continuum where you go, how badly are you actually struggling in your life? And how much have you been in a very dark place today? And now suddenly you don't have to deal with that because you're just chill, but it's there. For someone like me, there's no clear line except to do the inventory and to kind of go, I'm I'm doing okay, maybe rein it in. Or sometimes kind of going, I'm really, I'm really a bit concerned with how things have gone the past couple of weeks. I need to do something mm-hmm. about that. Or I'm doing great and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because it's working for me and I feel like that's a happy, healthy balance. But like I really have to check in with that because I can't have hard and fast rules because the hard and fast rules still can ca- cause a problem to me. You know, without getting too profound about my life at 52, I would say that the greatest achievement I have had in my life has been probably getting to understand myself and my addictions and my... Because I, I think most people can have an addictive personality if they're let have one. Um, I would say I have one that's been kept carefully in check without losing the crack. I, I'm a great believer in the life examined and I'm a great believer yeah. in learning and, and educating yourself as much as you can while you're here about about life, but also understanding yourself and understanding behaviours that lead to behaviours that lead to behaviours that you're not proud of or you don't feel is actually who you are. Do you and know what confuses me there? And I, and I hate this because I don't want to sit there and go, well, that's not true. I completely see it differently. But I notice when, when we talk about stuff like depression or anything like that, you've always had this particularly humble attitude of going, listen, I just, I mean, obviously I have feelings, I get sad, but like, I, I just don't get hit by that hammer. I think I just got lucky, maybe it's genes, whatever, but I think I just got lucky. I don't think I'm wiser or somehow I've done something right. Mm. And yet when it comes to addiction, you kind of do. You're not kind of seeing that some people actually just are not, are built to be in trouble and they have to be more careful. You don't attribute that something that you've done right has spared you depression or mental health issues. But you do attribute that good decisions have protected you from alcoholism. Whereas I think there are people who make fantastic good decisions are are deeply self-aware, but they just, same way with depression, there there are aspects of of the makeup of who they are, whether it be genetic or just the makeup of their personality, that they have to watch themselves more carefully. You keep saying that I'm not watching myself. I have No, you do watch yourself. No, you have. I think you do watch yourself. As a sample of one, I accept that as a sample of one. I can absolutely say... That if I had started doing drugs at 17, I would imagine my life at 52 would be far more fucked up if I was even yeah. still alive than I am. Okay. So that decision made and obeyed personally. No one told me to. Mm. In fact, probably if someone told me to, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. I came up to it with it myself. I don't know how that 17. No, but I consistently see little choices you make. You're aware of the lifestyle you lead, but you make little choices just to keep an eye on things. And they're really wise and they're good. Mm. And I consistently see those. But I also think even if you did that, if you were a different personality, you'd still be fucked. Well, I mean, now we're getting we're down a rabbit hole of personalities and, and, and you know, nature versus nurture. But I, I think my personality is such that it has been wrangled yes from an early age which means you can wrangle personality but no but that's what I'm, how come you've been able to wrangle yours and not everybody well, can well because i think part of the personality is willpower and part of the personality is intelligence and part of the personality is an understanding so there maybe you go. That, so, so if it's something like willpower so you could have somebody who's deeply self-aware and is particularly careful about making wise choices and you know have another drink have another drink (laughs) but like particularly self-aware and 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 I mean like Jesus me for example right I do I do make shitty choices at times 
but I'm well able to know here's what I need to do here's what I can't do and sometimes I'll struggle with something you go what about that and I go no can't do that that's not going to work and here I know why so I'm self-aware however when it comes down to something like willpower now I have fantastic willpower but the only way I can have decent willpower is by going into a very 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 negative place so the problem with me with willpower is that that kicks off something much more dangerous in my head Mm -hmm. long story short the point is you can have somebody who has the very same commitment to making good choices and really thinks about it and watches himself, but it won't work out for them like it does for you because maybe there's just something that doesn't fit the same way. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm never the guy who goes, do what I did. No, I know, okay? you're not preaching. So, uh, because I understand that doesn't work. So that's your but point. It's still a useful, but that's your no, point. But it's still a useful thing to say while acknowledging for some people it's just never going to work that easily. I've known men in my 40s who I, I've been friends with who I've had to really... You know, I've had, I've had to take credit cards off them yeah. for fear that they might harm themselves with drugs or whatever, okay? And they're mm. 40, and they're smart, and they know exactly. Mm. So the most important thing just to get back to is that all of these things, I know friends who've gone into absolute desperate gambling debt, stealing from family accounts and all that kind of mess, right? So all of these vices, you know, are vices for a reason, eating, everything. Like, they're vices for a reason. Yeah. And a lot of it is greed and desire based. Yeah. So checking your greed and desire, greed for uh, happiness, greed for uh, numbness, greed for not having to worry about things. The the, the human condition in first world countries is about understanding what sort of a person you are Mm. and what can I do or what can't I do? Or what if I start doing yeah. that? Is it start getting a bit out of hand? Right? So I see it and I, I know I, like, I'm not the expert and I know everyone's got their own model on it, but I see it as kind of a two pronged thing. So anyone who's dealt with serious addiction issues will know that there's the cause, like the actual what's wrong, what part needs to be healed, what, because it's coming from something. You don't, we don't suddenly act like this. What is broken in you that, 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 that this, because every behavior serves a purpose. I strongly believe that. And I've had some terrible behaviors that have been really damaging to me. But I always kind of went, at a certain point, I went, that thing that I was doing, no matter how bad it was, no matter how badly I hurt myself, that served a purpose because it was the best I could do at staying alive at the time. It no longer serves me and it hurts me and I don't want to be doing that. But I don't want to feel shame about having hurt myself with a substance or physically hurt myself because that was my best attempt at getting by at the time. And I no longer am there. Like every addiction or vice is there because there's a, there's a deep hurt there. There's something that's not okay with you and this is what you're trying to manage. And that's one side of it. But the other problem is, yeah, but there's also the tips and tricks as to the practical side. If you apply it in a simple thing that I think most people will kind of, most people struggle a little bit with food and you go, okay, an awful lot of people will comfort eat what's down there. They might be lonely. They might be bored. They might be low self-esteem. It's easy to laugh off that people are being you know, greedy. But an awful lot of people will struggle with a bit of comfort eating. Now, there's also the practical side about how can I best get... I I know that I have this attachment to food. Maybe it makes me feel safe. Maybe I get a bit lonely and bored. So I know why there's something deep down I need to deal with myself. I know why I eat. But I also need to go with the practical approach of how can I keep on top of this so that it doesn't get to be really out of hand? How can I rein it in a bit? It's two pronged if you've got a particular vice or substance issue that there's the practical side, which I think you're really good at going, I need to go off, it every, off the drink twice a year. I need to have a rule when it comes to gambling. This is what you have. And that's because otherwise it's, you know, it's common sense. You, you lose the run of yourself. But there's also the other piece of 
figuring out what's wrong with me. We always think that when we figure that out, that there's suddenly going to be a game show thing where the confetti will come down and your life's going to change. You figure it out, it doesn't magic it better. (laughs) And you don't really quite know where to go from there. But there's a two-pronged thing of, number one, I know this about myself. I know I'm a bit Moorish. I know I can be in trouble. So I have to implement these little rules and these habits because on a practical level, they're a good idea for me. They'll help keep me on the straight and narrow. But I also need to pay attention to, yeah, but I've got this other stuff under the surface going on and that's the catalyst. So I need to keep an eye on that as well. Mm. So I think there's a balance. And I don't think your eating disorder, alcoholism, gambling addiction, cigarette addiction, drug addiction comes from nowhere. Mm. People are genetically predisposed to having problems with judgment and stuff like that. But there are things that are before the eating disorder that cause the little mm. girl to grow up to have an eating disorder. That people yeah. kind of tend to ignore, go, oh, you just have an eating disorder. Yeah, but why do you have an eating disorder? Why, yeah. why are you an alcoholic? Why do you sit at home? And it's not as, as simple. If you look at something as simple as an eating disorder, it's not like, oh, because you want to be thin. No, it's because what does it actually mean, particularly for girls? You go, okay, what does it mean if somebody suddenly decided it was safer to be less? You can think from the thing of all the pressures on girls and you go yeah that might be there but I think there's a hell of a lot more about something in your world at a formative age made you feel that life would be better if you took up less space and that's kind of not just physically but that's metaphorically and so I think there's a massive thing that people overlook with that and then when you look at drinking when you feel less in control when you feel more relaxed life something somewhere told you it was safer if the edges were a bit more blurry or you're shy or you're not funny. Yeah. I think Coke will make you funny. And, you know, the, the sort of thing that, that we, we, we kind of do a little bit of work when things are going not great, maybe on depression front is, to me, I just think, and I do it as well, you have to stand clear of yourself and be the person looking in at your behavior. Go, okay, this behavior is, it might be comforting and whatever, but deep that there's a little part of everybody that goes, I know what I'm doing here. This is, this is not the real me or whatever. This is mm-hmm. not the me I want to be. It's very hard to get out to there and look in. Yeah, but yeah. if you do do manage it, then you can kind of go, okay, I need to now, like, yeah, I can have another drink. Yeah, I can keep going tonight. But tomorrow, I need to look at this and work out why am I in this? And it's nothing to do with the taste of food, the taste of drink no. or the crack. It's to do with something no. deep going on yeah. in you from before that needs to be worked out. Whether it needs to, uh, treatment or not is, is another thing. But I mean, uh, psychotherapeutic or psycho, psychiatric treatment. And the other thing I'd just say, just maybe to finish, is that whatever that thing is that you need to work on or you need to stand clear of and go, maybe the drink doesn't suit me. Maybe the drink makes things worse. Maybe the drink doesn't help. Your troubles do dissipate. Yeah. You're in the moment. You don't have to worry about the things that are troubling you. So there is a, that's the reason it exists as a, as a, as a vice. You know, we do slag religions and, you know, the one profound thing I love about religion comes from Buddhism, which is the root of all suffering is desire whether we're desiring just to be normal or not be sad or not be unhappy that's where i think there's something Hmm. in 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 the whole sort of zen well what i find like like most irish families there's alcohol there like one of my grandparents was an alcoholic that's my grandmother and her husband my grandfather who i was very close to was bipolar and he was deeply unwell with his bipolar disorder and he got very lucky in that when this thing was discovered it suited him and his life was grand again but it had been extremely extremely difficult and she had been kind of managing and covering it because at the time it's ireland and she had her own demons and she was an alcoholic so both of them became deeply religious but my dad's side of the family it was the old catholic shame kind of stuff there was none of that 
my mum's parents, they were deeply religious, as in they went to the church every day, they were in this meeting or that meeting. I really respected their faith. Whereas the other side of the family, it was just rammed down your throat in the traditional Irish way that was kind of unpleasant. Whereas I, I do I do envy people who have this idea of faith and that there's something bigger out there because, and I'm not sure it's the same for everybody, I think it's difficult for everybody in life, but sometimes it just gets so heavy. And then I noticed as well, an awful lot of people who are recovering addicts or alcoholics will partake in a spliff. I think an awful lot of people who present to A&E in serious distress, like they're suicidal or... I think an awful lot of people should be given um, cannabis. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the, the, we, we could probably do a whole podcast on whether we should be legalised and there's certain countries in the world where it is and they don't fall apart. But, uh, you know, society has its parameters, including religious parameters, including behavioural parameters, including how you behave around COVID. And you're not you're allowed to drink, but you can't drink too much. You're not allowed to do drugs and blah, blah, blah. I suppose the point we're we're making here is that everyone's different mm. and people have different problems in their lives. Some people have less, some people have more, some people have ones they can't explain, some people have ones they do. And there are societal things that allow us to get relief from these ailments that we have, mental ailments primarily. And sometimes it can get out of hand. And I think this is a good time to maybe introduce... Do you want to say anything else? Or? Yeah, no, so usually we kind of, we get to the end and we introduce the guest and we've kind of gone on a tangent, but I think we didn't really go where we needed to go at first and now we kind of have, probably mm. because we, we talked about... Probably because we had a couple of drinks. <laughs> <laughs> We'd had those anyway. No, but probably because we talked about Craig Smith and then suddenly we probably dropped the shit and said, okay, we're actually going to talk about the real conversation here. So mm. that kind of goes to show why his podcast was important and his integrity I still I go back to integrity and honesty and I think if there were more honesty then vices wouldn't be hidden and there'd be more compassion and we might be able to sometimes lean on a vice but learn how to come out of it even with us we've had a, we've had a better conversation we could have sat there and had a giggle like we did and not go anywhere deep but we, we as soon as we talked about Craig um it kind of called us on our shit didn't it it did Craig Smith is a guy who is a very lovable very kind guy a great friend who I still am very proud to call a friend. This is a fabulous interview for anyone with any interest in addiction. Without further ado, I give you Craig Smith. I'm here with a very good friend of mine who I've known for 10, 15 years. He is an absolute character, a man who's marched to his own drum. uh, And he's here today to talk about his life. And uh, he never is shy of his story. Craig Smith, welcome to the podcast. Craig? Thank you, Shawnee B. <laughs> Pleasure to be here sharing a pint of water with you. <laughs> We're having a pint of water. I'm on, Craig, Craig will explain why he's having a pint of water later, I hope, but I'm off the booze for January, and so uh, we're sitting in a rather forlorn basement, uh, the only two people in it. It was funny, I had a friend that used to stop for three months of the year, and I never really understood it at the time, but I, I, I do now, so I, <laughs> hats off to the... Um, one of the, we, we met in Singapore, and one of the first things I remember about you was you told me that you nearly became a professional footballer. I, I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, playing at Sheff- with Sheffield United for the longest time, and I, I think the time came where the, you get told whether you've been taken on as a professional. Uh, Dave Bassett, I think it was, said to me, uh, Craig, he says, you've got the heart, but you haven't got the technical ability. Mm-hmm. And I, at the time, I, I didn't really sink in what that meant, but I, I completely understand it now. It was the first time I actually had to come to terms with failure. That, that took me about three days to get out of my bedroom, 
I've written, I've written a piece in, in, in a play I wrote, which is what happens to the kid whose dreams are shattered when he's 12 and no one recognizes it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's pulled from you. You yeah. can't go on about it because it's pulled from everyone. Yeah. But it is a dream. Yeah. And it is failure. Yeah. And it and is for reasons that you kind of can come to terms. You, can, you know from the 12 guys around you yeah. that you're not in the top three or four. Yeah. There's a point at which you actually realize that you're in touch with the sense of who you are and that's okay and it doesn't matter where you fit in the pecking order or you're actually you're one of those people that feels very conscious of what everybody else is doing and as a result that it becomes a, the philosophy which you live your life by which is always competing you find a person that you know that you aspire to and you, you go after that that was my mission to be better than this person in the north of england we were either workers or miners, or we went, we went to fight. There's always this cla- been this class struggle with the north of England and the south of England, and I feel like I grew up knowing my place. I actually did quite well at school. Right. My dad got six O-levels, and he said, I'll give you £10 for every one you get, you get beyond me. So that wasn't I, very you know, generous. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> no, because I got seven, so I got a tenner out of it. So, but the, like, the funny thing was that he wanted me to apply that and, and use it. So I went to, to study architecture. It just Did you finish a degree in architecture? No. no. I, I flunked and I actually applied for the Marines. Wow, I never knew that. And uh, at the same time as applying for the Marines, I applied for... Hospital. Why did you apply for the Marines? What I got from sport was a camaraderie. I felt like there was a place that I'd oh. fit in. And I... I'd, Anything physical, I excel at. Anything mm. about leading a, a, a group, a team, like going into battle. Did you, you know, fight a lot when you were a kid? I think, yeah. yeah. I, I, I wasn't a fighter. I guess I was like a mother hen. And so you I, had a gang. I, I, I had a, you know, like I grew up, my dad was in hospital for like, I guess this is a, a big part of my life. My dad had contracted a strange disease, a virus called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Heard of it. At the time, there were, I think there was only 17 people diagnosed with it. I, you know, I didn't see my dad at home for maybe a year. Was it autoimmune it, problem? It, it, yeah, it was. And, and basically, it's, um, he was walking on crutches. And then uh, within a week, he was on intensive care on full life support. Shit. The only thing he could actually use was his eyes. But uh, it felt like a lifetime. And growing up at that time, like I've grew up with my mom and my sister and I think that that formulative time when you needed a dad around my dad was fighting for his own life in hindsight that's something that I look back at and having that not having a man around being the kid at school everybody bullied because I didn't have a dad really? oh I I didn't have an older sister sorry an older brother like all my mates did it was one of those things where I went from being that kid that was the big kid that everybody used to pick on to I've got to protect myself and so I started playing sports and and getting more aggressively into I've got to prove who I am put my stake in the ground as a a man my mum taught me to fight she taught me to punch I uh, kept coming home out, like crying and because I'd been beaten up because somebody stole my ball on the on the yard and she said just she remember in the garage she told me how to get the stance and then she says just smack them in the face as hard as you can and I <laughs> promise you they'll never give you trouble again and it, you know like it worked kind of true yeah 
Did your dad's health improve then, or is he still with us? Or? Yeah, no, he's, he's with us now, and he's, he's, they're awesome. Uh, you know, they're my inspiration. I look back to to those times, and I, I believe I have said, if he ever listens to this, oh, it would be an interesting, an interesting experience to sit across from him, see his face. But I, I have said, I think that that was one of the best things that happened to our family, Dad. You know, and I, I really thank you for going through it and for fighting. And more, my mum will always say, well, everybody worries about your bloody dad. What about me? You know, like, I had to bring two kids up. I had to work. We didn't have insurance. Mm. But yeah, I look, I look at that. Whenever I struggle, it's like, it's nice to have these things in life that you look back at and you go, oh, that's what it feels like. I respect you. Now I've experienced something similar. Yeah. It didn't kill me then, mm. you know, where each time I kind of hit a wall, it's like, well, you know, I remember when this happened. I remember when like, I didn't make it as a professional footballer. I remember when I didn't make it as an architect. I remember when I lost that job and the moments in time that are the crossroads. So let's go back to the Marines thing. What happened there? My granddad told me some stories about when he was in the war. Right. First, it started out by saying... You'll never make it in the Marines. You don't have the discipline. And I'm right. like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he, he went on to tell me some stories about the war. And it, I think one of the biggest things that I remembered was I questioned what was it about the Marines or the forces or, you know, it was camaraderie, like mm. teamsmanship, mm. taking care of each other, but also travel. Discovery, yeah. Yeah. not dying on my own doorstep. I always used to say that, you know, I don't want to live and die on my own doorstep. And yeah. All my family, the people I knew, all did. That's um, will. And for whatever reason, I just didn't have that satisfaction of acceptance. There was a, a, an interview and an acceptance to a, a two week officer training course in Dartmouth. And then I also got acceptance to an art college. And like after the conversation with Grandad, I was like, eh, maybe I'll go to art school. Right. So I went to art school. That was the really the time where I was starting to be exposed to people come traveling from different places to to come and study. And I was like, okay, so I'm, here I am, born and bred in Sheffield. Now I'm studying in Sheffield, and I I missed the opportunity to go somewhere and, yeah. experience, and maybe if I'd done that maybe I wouldn't have had that lust to, to, to yeah. go adventure but instead I, I kind of stayed close I also like at that point when I wanted to do architecture I remember the peer pressure and I was very strong willed but I was easily persuaded I, I was still the crowd pleaser at that yeah. time and yeah. very much so and I think that there were a lot of people that I kind of like respected older that were like oh you know it's, it's a longer course than medicine and I think you know so what do you want to go do that for it's like you want to get a job you know like you're not going to have any money there was a time where what was said was gospel so what granddad said or yeah. what dad said it, it's right yeah. before yeah. the internet and I, I've had to transition from I know best to maybe I don't yeah. to the only thing I am certain of is what's going on inside me uh, it's the fear that is driven, implemented as a byproduct of the class system yeah. that, that does that. Different is not good. You yeah. know, you're supposed to fall in with the regiment. Yeah, yeah. We've been taught to not accept people that are excelling in a specific area because 
they're not playing the game the way we've been taught Total, the rules. Yeah, exactly. So how did you get into the art game? What, what happened there? Well, I finished art school, Sheffield Polytechnic. Towards the end, I started... I was always a big drinker. Yeah. Always a big drinker. Same. At that point, that was my first introduction to drugs. Up until that time, I, I don't even think I'd smoked a joint, yeah. really. But then I started getting into whiz. Speed. What's whiz now? Speed. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, and that was part of just fueling the drinking, sustaining yeah. the drinking. Keeping going. Session. And then, the, you know, like magic mushrooms and things yeah. like that started to happen in the later years. And that was being introduced by these people coming in. And really my life became about smoking, drinking and art and doing yeah. stuff like and partying. Yeah. And so I started thinking, well, why don't I, instead of starting a career in, in England what about traveling and starting a career somewhere mm. else so I, I got my portfolio and I guess back then I knew that if I, I can't give myself an out so yeah. one way ticket you know like yeah. come back in a box you're right. if you you're absolutely to, right you yeah. know yeah, yeah. and um, so we got a one way ticket to Hong Kong and at the time I didn't even know whether it was a British colony I thought it was Japan <laughs> honestly that's, China, how, that's, yeah. that's how aware and how travelled that was. I think I've been to Blarney's and Ibiza up until then. <laughs> I broke my nose playing football in Holland. Yeah. But I remember that, like, like landing and driving through Hong Kong thinking, what the fuck have I done? You know, yeah. I'm just shitting my pants completely. So it took about two months to pluck up the courage to start going to interviews. And from there on, I went to 36 interviews. It was just complete adventure so where did you land the last interview that I went to was with Andy Greenaway at Ogilvy and Maida ah. Andy took me on and gave me a job and I like it was the most exciting thing and I, never, I couldn't believe the, the salary and you know like it was just awesome well he's a great guy Andy because he's, he's he's got a wisdom and a calmness about him and he kind of He's got great empathy. He's, he's, yeah. He understands diff- how to handle different people. Yeah, yeah. And we're he's a bit... A, he's a good gardener. Those of you who want to know who we're talking about can go back to episode two of A Pine with Shawnee B where Andy Greenaway tells all these stories. Yeah. But anyway, so, so what happened to you then? You stay, how long did you stay in Hong Kong for? Seven years. I think one of yeah. my, the greatest things that I took from Hong Kong was to, to be a minority. Yeah. To go from calling chinkies chinkies when yeah. I go to the Chinese chip shop and come from a place that is very racist but yeah. not intentionally yeah. just the way it is they're yeah. different you know to sitting on a tram and people not sitting next to me because I was the white devil yeah. or the, the white ghost Guaylo. it was the beginning of understanding that we're all the same but different Like I, I but used, there were a I huge used, number of wank English Mainly oh, English yeah. wankers out there who treated ex- the Chinese fucking expat- but that's oh. an, I mean that's an expatriate lifestyle. Yeah. I come from the giving end of a serving servile environment. I come from the receiving end of yes. a servile environment. Yeah, my yeah. grand my mum's parents were servants. Yes. And grandfather worked down the pit. Interesting. Like, that mindset of I'm a minority, this is what it must feel like to be black. Yeah. Uh, you know, Did you I, go I, there as well? Oh yeah, yeah course, same. Without a doubt. amazing. But I've I've <clears> now <throat> come to understand that it's it's never a novelty to be black. No, no. I didn't go through oppression. If this was day in, day out and your parents weren't were, weren't successful because yeah, and, uh, they weren't accepted because clear, of the colour of the skin. It's clear we're not trivialising. We're getting a very privileged insight yeah. into it. Yeah. But it's the expatriate motherfuckers that were yeah. on the yeah. receipt on the giving end that created that problem for yeah. us. 
that made us unwanted or yeah. unwelcome. Yeah. Uh, and so I understand that. But I, I think... That and so did you go quite down into the underbelly of Hong Kong? With When I started that, uh, that job, Andy Greenaway was like... He was really a great guide. He mm. was that big brother, that father figure that helped me navigate yeah. through life. But then he left to go to Singapore. And I think at that point, things started to go Pete Tong, you know? Yeah. There was one, my first writer, I also have to give credit to uh, a guy called Peter Bailey. And Peter Bailey, he was also struggling to find his place. Yeah. What Hong Kong did... It's, it, it's a melting pot for, for, for wanderers and drifters that are searching for something. Yeah. And Peter Bailey used, used to see me kind of like turning up for work or being hungover. And he'd, he'd actually say, why don't you come climbing? Why don't you come climbing with me? And he got me out on the rock. And that actually transformed my life. It, it allowed me to reconnect with that team spirit land, that like putting yourself out there and getting back in touch with nature and that really kind of salvaged the spiral that I was inevitably yeah. going to like hit I had to decide between drink and whether I was going to continue climbing because it was dangerous I'd, I'd turn up on the rock 6 o'clock <laughs> on Saturday morning I'd have soy machine leg and I'd have the, the drink hangover ditters we'd climb through the summer and through the winter we'd run trail called the McElhose Trail which is a 100 kilometer run he was actually taking a team to run the McElhose you have supporters to come and support you at the different stations bring you dry socks bring you some food and just a friendly face and like I mean 100 kilometers is pretty fucking long and I turned up with a backpack some spare socks after five pints of Guinness like when they were like 10k into it and I ended up running it the whole way with them did you really? yeah Jesus. I didn't get a medal or anything. No. Why did you? Because I was but, drunk. <laughs> but it was like that was an example of like how extreme it was. Plus ten, minus ten. Well, that's the 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 peak, the best version of me. Right. And then there's this other version yeah. which is advertising, cronyism, tapping into that expatriate world, yeah. which was the the seduction to the dark side, if you will. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. that you throw advertising under the bus, which I totally agree with, by the way. Yeah. But just that fucking bullshit lifestyle that you loved and you hated and yeah. you knew was wrong, but yeah. you did it. I guess it feel, I felt like I was being pimped out, but I allowed it to happen. Yeah. And I, like, but the, the, the wankers out there, feel free, of course, to do your usual hatchet jobs on this conversation. You know, they get on me and go, well, why did you go into it then, you fucker? You know, look at all the money it gave you. Look yeah. at you and you're yeah. able to stand on your fucking yeah. horse now going on advertising. Yeah, I am doing that. And I am very grateful for the money I got from advertising. But yeah. my point is this. Advertising could be so much better. Yeah. And it could be more, have much more fucking integrity about it. Yeah. And it could do more good for the world. Yeah. And it could be, look after its people better. It's run by fucking wankers. Yeah. And yeah. that's my point. Because most people in their heart who work in the industry and have done yeah. for the last 20 years, deep down, deep, deep down in their heart, they know it is a fucking rancid yeah. thing that could be beautiful. Yeah. Could I, be beautiful. I think, I mean, that's, that's I couldn't agree more. And someone said to me about my time in. Hong Kong and when they first met me early on they, they said yeah, you're a really nice guy and I'm surprised because you're a fucking wanker you know like I didn't realise yeah. but now I'm getting to know you yeah. you know and I, and I think that that was the first time where I realised that 
that advertising, if you're not careful, it will create a facade. Because what we do as advertisers is we create facades. All that I learned about applying a, a, an essence, a story to a brand, I started to do that. Right? It's like I've got a public face and a private face. Wow. And I think that Hong Kong was the first time where I started realizing that I want to bring these closer together. Mm, yeah. But the problem was I didn't know who the fuck I was uh. because I'd been pretending to be these things. So the next thing I needed to learn was how do I get in touch with self mm -hmm. and, and stop projecting that back outwards instead of keeping self inside and all the feelings and everything that goes with it and just keep polishing this facade. What I learned in advertising, which is the essence of a story of a product or how it's used or what it's for or yep. the essence of the need of the consumer and meeting that need is the same story or the same way of like discovering the essence of a person. You create the person, understand the person, and tell that story. And if that story doesn't match the product, you don't introduce yeah. them. There's and a Gladwell-esque book in that, I reckon, right? I think so. Yeah, get I on to so. it. What, so you, when did you, you move to uh, Singapore then? Is that right? So yeah, so back to the original question, which is, did you get into the underbelly of Hong Kong? So yes. I definitely got into the underbelly of Hong Kong and it was when Andy left <laughs> and, and I you know and I, I met a new group of friends and I spent less time with Pete and less time on the rock mm. and I really discovered ecstasy and mm. coke and mm. partying and, mm. and but the, the debauchery and insanity that came with it was just This is if there's an area of my life where I have to bite my tongue, this is one of those times because there are, there are times and, and experiences that took place that I, I still haven't really gone Buried. deep enough to kind of uncover. Them. I think they're better no. off staying there. <laughs> and I, want, I do say one, one day there's going to be a movie that's going to expose this from my point of view. Wow. And you know, like I think that the, one of the low points. One, one, one morning I, I woke up with a tattoo and I remember my girlfriend at the time punching me in the face and saying you told me you were going to wait for me to have a tattoo and I got to work and my writer had the same tattoo and I'm <laughs> and like where remember. did we get this from and it was like Ricky and Pinky's opposite the flying pig in Wan Chai Mad. and I had a video camera it was like the trickle of one big Christmas party or you know and I had the video camera and I stuck it into one of the girly bars and the curtain punched me yeah. and I remember like laying on my bike like what just happened yeah. and the bouncer came out and I ran in put my video camera down and I says look after this and I ran back out and started getting into it with these bouncers that's one of those moments where I just think about the trouble that you can get yourself into and how things can go really wrong really I'm quickly. the same I mean I think one of the things that was amazing to me was how easily it, a, a night kind of can go from oh, just yeah. just and normal yeah. to mental yeah. like in, in, in a taxi ride if you don't know how you to know say no and you enjoy the adrenaline of yeah. the ride you know, know like there are people in my life that I love dearly I'll always be there for them if they you know but yeah. I, I think there was a time during my party days where I used to 
be terrified of bumping into him. Yeah. But when I bumped into him, it was awesome. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it was it was the idea of know. knowing where it's going to go. That moment before you like you decide to have that pint or have that line or yeah. whatever it is, and it's just the knowledge, the wisdom that you have. That's like you know, this is not necessarily a good idea, but it it's always seems to be a good idea shortly after. And then how, so why did you go to Singapore? So I went to Singapore, Andy Greenaway offered me a job. Were you pretty much spiraling out of control by the end in Hong Kong or were you Um, still holding it together? Yeah, it was nuts. Right. It was nuts. (laughs) It was really nuts to the point of turning up for work after spending like the night, day in the girly bar. Right. And then turn up at work and continuing work. And that was kind of somewhat acceptable. Nobody really frowned on it. (laughs) It's amazing the resilience that you have at that age. Mm. I didn't really know it was wrong. Mm. What actually happened, it's just the the darkness. After a hangover, like I used to call it, it's like a one-day, two-day hangover. The The second day is just the gnarliest. The first day you feel like shit. The second day is the the chemicals in your in your brain are, are starting to reconstitute themselves. Yeah. And that lack of DHA or um, whatever it is that kind of gives you that good spirit that I didn't have. Yeah. That was they were the days that were the suicidal days. When every day becomes that feeling, then you need a drink or you yeah. need a line. That's the the path to addiction. Yeah, you know. Yeah. In my Did you opinion. ever get suicidal? I think there's a I, there are moments in my everyday where really? I have moments that are just you know like they're very dark flashes. Really, I'm not a happy person. I'm trying to talk as candidly as I, as I can, I think, for just for the benefit of anybody that's listening, really, yeah. just because. I think that it, it's okay to yeah, I agree. to have feelings of elation and it's okay to have feelings of I just don't want to fucking be here I don't want to yeah. have to go through this and I every day I have those feelings mm. and to a point where I just want to break down then I go to those places of what mum must have gone through what dad must exactly. have gone through my dad told me a, a story of uh, when he was in hospital I remember one time he wheeled himself to the to the stairwell and he says I remember looking down and I wish I wish I could fucking get myself up it up so I could throw myself over that fucking banister and he couldn't do it you know uh-huh. I don't think he would have ever have gone through it and mm-hmm. I think that the time that I'm most at risk is when I've self-medicated so in some way my brain function mm-hmm. is, you know the chemicals in my brain is, aren't working the way they're supposed to you know so whenever anybody's at risk from those thoughts Mm. it's okay to have those thoughts it's not okay to to act on those thoughts in a way that continues them or feeds them I think the way to to deal with those feelings of depression or of suicide or of Mm. darkness is to to play with them and to make them your friend, you know, mm. like they take the bull by the horns kind yeah. of idea. So I, the black dog, accepting that every part of what goes on inside of you, mm. and and trying to give that compassion, is the first path to understanding. Until you can do that, it becomes like an area like you don't visit that place. You just push them into a box and you mm. keep stuffing in it. 
if you don't acknowledge those feelings and thoughts and, mm. and impulses, then eventually, gang up when you do inebriate yourself, that's when it, they all that box explodes, yeah. and you either don't come home for a week, yeah, or you don't come or, home at all, or you don't come home at all. Mm. And I think that that's the difference between where I came from and what happens now. I come from a place where it's like, well, if I, if there's a problem with drinking, then that stops drinking, don't that? Yeah, and yeah. as opposed to yeah, it's you know, very like blunt. asking for help, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, like yeah, the that, idea that, of gonna uh, gonna that, rehab. That's why Ireland is, you know, has got such an alcohol problem because it's just I'll get over it, you know. Yeah, but that yeah. that kind of approach. I mean, I did work on depression, you know, creatively, and, and I, that is one of the things. You're told just as the worst thing to say to someone who's depressed, you know, yeah. you'll be all right, you know, and that's a very Irish thing. It's a yeah. very, you're fine, sure. Yeah. Everyone, everyone goes through that. So I met you then in Singapore and I had never met you and I, lo- I loved you when I met you and you're, you're just this really Black mad, house. you were Black mad. And, and I mean, you were mad in mad ways, like you were, you had fucking drugs in Singapore, which is really mad thing to be doing. I'm not that sure, sure you shouldn't be saying that, but when you walk into a room, it was just here's Craig you were interested in people you were interested in people's stories you didn't it wasn't all about you like so even some of the stuff you've done in the last 10 years in my view where you're much more considered in how you deal with people I think than you were back then but you still had that I mean you were you want to know people's stories where you were still looking for something you were going what's what's your deal I think that goes back to I'm a chameleon yeah. Here's a new set of clothes. Yeah. Help me understand those clothes so I can try them on. Mm. It's interesting to have you say that to me because a lot of that, my memories of those times, I always thought I was an obnoxious, egotistical prick. And I always thought that that was the facade that I needed to put out there. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, and it's, but it's lovely to hear that because yeah. I, it's like there's a lot. I did black out a lot. Yeah. I, do, I can't have regrets because I've lived my life through experiences yeah. and I haven't tried to repeat experiences. Yeah. I've repeated drugs, mm. but I've tried to take those, like, use those drugs to take me to different experiences. Mm. Some of them awesome, unimaginable, and some of them so sad or dark or yeah. horrible, yeah. terrifying that I can only come out of them that walk of shame, walking mm. home, of like, whew, I got away Dodged with it. Dodged a bullet um, there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I pick myself up from feeling that remorse or guilt by saying, one of my friends doesn't have to go through this. Or my kids won't have to because I'm experience this. Because I'm taking the bullet I'm going to tell them. You know, and it's oh, like, I'm going to tell them. Okay, gonna, okay. I want to be able to share these yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah. This is probably the first time I've ever actually gone on record as to the conversations and experiences I've had. Like, the, the insanity... Like, I still don't think it's insane to have drugs in yeah. Singapore. I, yeah. Like, I just... I, like, when you get to know a place and it becomes so familiar, then... Well, it, it is insane because of the consequences well, it, of, of getting caught. You know, you yeah. end up with train tracks down your arse for the rest of your life. Thank you, you for correcting me. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, no, it, it, it certainly is insane. Yeah. But it, it, it's certain, I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it, it just felt normal. And I think that that's part of my the problem that I've always had with authority is like, it, it's more of my protest against being governed. 
But the scary know. story behind this is is you, and you remember this. Craig just mi- you just missed this. There was a swoop on basically you know the gang. You yeah, know? yeah. There was a, there was a party and there were about fifty people at a party, and I was supposed to be at the party. And twenty five of those people actually ended up doing time. And the reason I wasn't at that party was because I was so hungover <laughs> from the night before. I had a fight with my girlfriend, and I remember going to see a friend and smoking some crack, and kind of walking all about seven o'clock in the morning, like staggering into the house, and I just couldn't bring myself to go to this party that night. Wow. The next day, a buddy of mine called and said, "Have you seen the newspaper?" I'm like, "No." He's like, "Get a newspaper. Read the newspaper." When I got a newspaper, and it was the story of this big bust. One of those moments where I, I like I think that when these things happen in life, there's a reason that I wasn't read. I didn't need to learn that lesson, right. or there's a reason I've been spared that lesson. Yeah, maybe. maybe. And but either way, I try and take it as I've got to try and do. You're implying everyone at the party do, was ready. Do <laughs> no, I think we're, we just we all. Have I think it's fucking lessons. fluke that you weren't there. But yeah, I mean, no. there were big hitters taking it. I want to go. Yeah, bef- I want to. I want to get sort of. The, um, I want to get to now, you moved to America. Why, why did you move to America? I was always terrified of the US. And I think having my entire career spent in Asia, they were big fish mm. in a very small pond. That's right. I had that same feeling that I had of being in England. Mm. You know, like I had to get away from this mm. or see what was beyond, especially in the advertising business. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like and you've never it? worked in London either. Neither and I. Never I. Worked in I, London, I came for the same reason. I say you yeah. gotta, you gotta prove yourself in one of those two yeah. to say that you were actually any good at advertising. Yeah, yeah. I wrote, sat down to write three letters to three agencies. The first letter was to Wyden Kennedy. Uh, set up a meeting to meet Dan Wyden. You know, he has his own story, and I think he, he he's done amazing things, and so to go to a place where I wanted to be close to this man. I wanted to be able to, yeah. to learn better ways. But the way I landed in Wyden, in Portland. You seemed happy then. I mean, I was so proud. I was so proud of myself. But the sad thing was that the casting wasn't right for me and a partner at the time. In hindsight, I still have to make amends with a few people. Right. I need somebody to have me back. Yeah. I can't be feeling insecure. I have to feel like I'm grounded and I have to feel in a good place. And so I went from having the, my dream job, giving probably like a, a 60% of what I knew was inside. Mm. And I, even to this day now, I think if I was to take a full-time job, that I would be proudest to take a job back at Wine Kennedy in Portland. Yeah. I have to say, I think I agree with you about the, someone having your back or at least being able to trust your co-workers and yeah, colleagues. Yeah. And that, that's actually not just a widen or that guy thing. That's a yeah. kind of a corporate culture thing. You're encouraged to be in competition with your colleague yeah. at your level yeah. because they somehow think, oh, they can, they can like rats in a cage and one yeah. will emerge yeah. victorious. And it's yeah. kind of horrible. It's what we, yeah, got yeah. When we talked about earlier about the ad business. Talk to me then about how the wheels fell off. So, yeah, so after, I think I was, at 18 months I was in Portland and uh, things weren't working out. And I, I accept responsibility. I have, at the end of the day, we can only blame ourselves. It's yes. very easy to point fingers. I didn't have the chops. From there on, I had these three months 
of transition where I kind of wound it down with Wyden. So we moved to New York, got married, and started a new job at um, BBH. At BBH. That's right. So, and that was going really well. But again, I, I not finding my feet is less about my inefficiencies as a as a as a human being, mm-hmm. but more about the the transition between east and west. Yeah. I came from a way of doing advertising and winning awards yeah. to a place that did it differently. More grown it was up. more constrained, more grown up, more mm. process oriented. Mm. And, duller. And yeah, duller yeah. certainly. So I have a I good story around this, and this is the time when people like Andy, you know, uh, who Craig introduced me to back in Singapore, and we were partners, but that we were worried about you because I came over from, I came over from Asia for a trip to New York, and we yeah. went. And you were having trouble with your ex-wife, uh-huh. and you said, oh, "I need you to talk to her." And I said, well, "I don't really know her." And he said, "No, come on, <laughs> come on over. <laughs> Help me. Yeah, come over. It's Sunday. Come on over." And and I went over to Brooklyn for my hotel in Midtown, whatever, and we were in some little wooden bar near your house and it was Sunday afternoon Brooklyn and we were yeah we were drinking there and we were drinking bottles of beer and you were telling me what was going on and, you know you were in, you're in a bad way and for every one bottle I was having you were having two and I was yeah. like okay I haven't seen this yeah, yeah. fucking speed drinking before yeah. and, and then we went back and you said right talk to Sean and then you went downstairs and I was yeah. like I had only met your wife for the first yeah, time yeah, then yeah. I was like really I was like fuck this is awkward and, and then we went out to a party down the road and it was like fuck we're going out and it was like it was, it was full on it was, yeah. it was Sunday I had to get up from work the next day I was wrecked yeah, no, but, but yeah so the, the, I'm, I'm assuming this was par for the course you were partying just as hard in an yeah. environment and in a situation that doesn't really like or allow that everybody I knew at some point was partying hard going hard in some way shape yeah. or form yeah. it's just that I didn't I was always that last person was like everybody go home so I go from being the life and soul of the party to where's everybody gone Yeah, and I'm on my own and now I'm like fuck you know I'm terrified of being on my own yeah. so I do more drugs or yeah. I drink more or yeah. I go find another party why were you me. terrified to be on your own I just I never had the chance to get acquainted with myself right I you know I think part of running at life so fast life ultimately slows you down yeah and like being a partier the process of life yeah. getting married meeting someone going through the, the machinations of settling down and planting yeah. roots and preparing for children if you don't really kind of adjust to that process, eventually you find yourself in isolation and you have to, to make a decision. Mm. Do I keep this life going? Or yeah. do, I, do I come to a point where I just say, okay, what do I want to do from here? And it's like that come to Jesus or like... Was there, know, a, that, was that there a conversation? And I think at, that at BBH... It actually came to a head at the BBH 25-year anniversary yeah. in Miami. That being a, just a great party, but I remember somebody handed me three Vicodin for the, for the weekend, and I just unknowingly just kind of popped in with speeches, kind of like the habit, and I just turned into this crazy person. And unfortunately, you know, the entire 
office, were there. office global yeah, kind of community yeah. of BBH were present and <laughs> some of them noticed and some of them didn't but mm-hmm. I think there were certain instances that raised eyebrows yeah. and then when we got back to New York I was taken into a room and uh, an amazing lady who was the HR lady at the time said to me Craig we know you like to party and we're not critical of the work that you do here because we think you're an awesome member of the team and we love the work, we really appreciate it. But you spend so much time at the office. But the way you party, there's a point where in the office and in this environment, you need to know that we can't protect you. There's a point where we just can't protect you. But we want to help you. Mm. And at, this was that point where I was like, facade came up that northern English language yeah. is like what, 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 what meant because I'm drinking yeah. like yeah. what like I'm the only one it's yeah. like look at and I started yeah. put, like thinking all Making these excuses. people that I'm surrounded by that are like crazy as yeah. I am but uh, for whatever reason I was no, that, that party got back to me you know right. I mean yeah, you yeah. know it's like, like that went around the town and I saw I mean and it's like that's hard it still kind of sends makes me cringe cringe yeah. yeah and it's like you know like I, I, it's it makes me tearful like kind of talking about it but I this I think this is part of it I've got to be able to share these stories mm. openly and you know at that point in that room you know I had to make this decision well obviously I am being given a warning this is a time where I need to decide where do I go from here do I want to continue my career do I want to advance yeah. on this path or do I just want to take a dog leg and just get back on it and I, I think this is like more than anything the reason I want to share this is because this is an example of a corporation taking Doing care the, of its people yeah. I guess not every corporation can afford 40 grand to send their, yeah. their people to rehab. Yeah. But that was what was offered. Well, the, the irony is they can. They can, yeah. yeah. No, they no, just don't bother they their fucking yeah. holes. Um, but they, they, they did, and they did it right, and the, the management took care of me. And so the, and the next day I was on a plane to Minnesota, to Hazelden, yeah. and I went and spent six weeks in Minnesota. I made a decision, I'm going through this, I've decided to do this, so like, well, let's bring it on. And I took my video camera and I wanted to make a documentary, and they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> this is all about... See if I see any famous like, people. None of that bullshit, Craig. It's like, this is about you going inside, yeah. which was my greatest fear. Yeah, of course. Craig Smith getting to know... I mean, Craig, it might Craig be Smith. useful for you. I mean, people were very aware of this all over the world. And, really? and worried about you because oh, yeah. you, are, you are a very loved guy believe it or not you know a lot of people do love and care for you deeply and uh, there was a huge exhalation of breath when that happened because there was a making me cry uh, don't cry <laughs> there was an implicit part of your friends myself included when we think about you that something bad is going to happen yeah something really bad's going to happen yeah. you know and when I, what I mean by that is without being putting too fine a point that death is going to happen mm-hmm. and there was an exhalation of breath when that happened and I, th- I, I think you uh, I knew that, that's a, that is I, actually yeah. they, people talk about needing to have a line in the sand and yeah. I think that was it and I think yeah, you yeah. charged at it the way you charge at things and it yeah. was good that you did it yeah, that yeah. way 
that's when you stand up and yeah. say I'm an alcoholic it took me a week to say that did it really and it took me another week to say I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict wow. and it took me maybe like October 17 2007 was when it began the to today I now I am an addict I'm just an addict for me it's a path to wholesomeness right as opposed to Oh, you mean you're addicted to a path to wholeness? Yeah. Okay, you're trying to... It's like, it's whatever it is... Did you fall fall a few times? Did you go back on the booze or drugs? No, I think... Smoke pot, right? Yeah, smoke pot. And I I have done that. And, you know, like, I think that's something that you have to practice. It was was the the last drug of my choice. I liked the uppers. I liked to be able to go fast. Yeah. Weed has actually helped me in ways that like meditation helps yes me. yes it takes me to a place of having no choice but to be present once you get over the panic and your mind racing is like my mind isn't doing what my body's doing yeah. oh fuck i'm dying and once you get through that panic of have being altered yeah in a different way and for yeah. me it was being slowed down and you get to a place of acceptance of being still but being able to channel your mind in a way where you can mm. you can listen to what's going on inside, mm. listen to the feelings, and then have a conversation with those feelings with yeah. yourself. It's like, well, you know, what does this feeling mean? Learning to deal with shit that you can deal with, mm-hmm. that you that is closest, that is mm-hmm. most urgent, of greatest priority, yeah. and most relevant to who you are, yeah. to what your aspirations are, what your needs are. And starting there, and starting to pass this information, like like I've been doing, I do a lot of vipassana meditation now. Mm-hmm. My wife is my my guide for that, and you know, every morning she. You have a new wife, it must be said. I have a new wife, I haven't really met. She's part of my salvation. Yeah. Um, how hard was it to stay clean? That I. Um, the, the breaking point for me in rehab was the therapist said to me, what does it feel like? And I was trying to explain this kind of sense of anxiety of like, I don't exist or like, I'm not complete. And she says like, it's like, an, like a hole, like a hole that you're trying to fill. And it's like, it's like that feeling when you're high or you've done a line and then you do another line then you do another line and you start getting that I need a drink and then I need a cigarette Mm. and it's just you're constantly chasing just like this feeling that you don't want this feeling to come back and as soon as you start coming down you start feeling this like sense of isolation and and emptiness and lack of sense of Mm. worth I remember telling her, and I just burst into tears and I'm like how do you know And and, and I think like I've said a lot about Understanding that we're all the same, but we're so different. Yeah, you know, and we're so different because of the way we've been taught. Mm-hmm. And but we're all the same because we're kind of people chemically. We're similar and we have the same structure and the same genetic makeup in many mm. ways. And that mixture of things was that was that point where I started to understand the secret. And the secret was it's like. Like everybody has that emptiness. Everybody has like feelings of negativity, and but not everybody makes that jump of that. There's something that's not right. 
that's not working that's not working and then dealing with that it's like getting to know a person it wasn't about the drink or the drugs I'm an addict mm. I'm an addict to like greens green mm. juices yeah. to running to rock climbing yeah, yeah, yeah. to football Even addictive to friendship yeah. and that's it and yeah. it's like everybody that has an addictive personality is in danger mm. of living life to the absolute fullest and having an amazing life mm. or breaking themselves mm. it's it's a shift of mindset from i am afflicted to i have a gift yeah and it all it was is just i needed somebody to put their arm around me and say look you know there's a different way of running at this yeah. and bbh helped me on that path yeah and uh, hazelden helped me understand where i was on that path i have the knowledge of where these paths lead to now I don't want to go back and so like the the decision is much greater than I want to drink that's what leads to being what they call a dry drunk a good way of saying it is like I decided that there's a new drug and this new drug is getting to know me the more I went inside of who I was which was my fear and as a result I was running away from I, I just I was just a runner I had a feeling I blocked it, I medicated, I ran away from the, the bad things. And I think rehab was the first time where I realized I could stand mm-hmm. and face this. And all the other stuff that I was stressing about, nothing really mattered. So it was that programming that then I just applied to, like when I came out, it wasn't like nothing's changed. Mm. You know, it's just that I found a different way of looking at this. Right. That programming that I'd been doing to justify all the bullshit that I that I that happened to me mm. was actually I, I learned to refine that tool or that process. When I have a feeling now, it's like oh, it's a navigation. Instead of this is a feeling of anxiety, it's yeah. like well, <clears throat> that feeling it's not fear. It's either coming from guilt, jealousy, anger, frustration, insecurity. What is this on the scale of fear? What? Mm. How do I put a name to that? Yeah. So learning to understand fears, I wasn't afraid. All that darkness was just it just lifted, and it wasn't the alcohol that put the darkness there. Right. It was myself, my own programming that kept the darkness there, and and society has said it's do, it's drink and drugs that has created this. But yeah. actually, it's just I just never had the tools to be the best version of right. me. So coming out, I started to realize that getting high on life, I guess it, 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 it's real and it's just like taking a drug. But like, like so, I mean, there is, I mean, and again, that's a framework which I think is very solid and it makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. The, but the practical applications, I mean, you don't have to answer, but like, did you fall off the wagon a few times? Did you, did you start drinking? So there was a time where I, I went out dinner parties you know like lots of dinner parties and I'd have a drink like by accident I'd pick a glass up and I'd drink it and I'd spit it out right and then it started happening and I'd be like mm, okay I'll, just, I'll spit some of it out yeah but I, I never I never actually drank until last year oh this is the first time I've actually had this conversation. But well, we, don't, mean, have to keep, we no, don't have to keep it in if you no, want. No, the, like, the honesty yes, is, okay, is, is why I needed to yes, establish okay. the honesty thing. Because when you lose honesty, mm. you lose the right to be yourself. The problem with addictions is shame. 
yes. and the shame is created by not being honest. Yes. But the hardest thing as an addict is to say, <laughs> you know what, when I go on this road trip, I want to have a sit down and I want to have a beer with my dad at the campfire because my dad still comes from that camp and if they knew that it was going to make make me want to drink, he wouldn't drink. And it like even to a point where he's like, "Oh, Craig, you know, if you're going to start drinking, I, I don't need to drink." I don't, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know. But it's like, no, Dad. It's like this is actually it, it's just it's part bonding, but it's like it, it means I know that I wasn't a, a dependent addict, physically, biologically dependent yes. addict. I know that I was addicted to the habit. Yes. And it's about changing the habit, yeah. changing that process. That So you were able to have a couple of beers with your dad? So when we went on a, on a recent road trip, on RV trip, I started having a beer with him. Yeah. I, I still like that buzz. Like I'll have one and then it's like, I, you know, I'll just nick a couple and I'll enjoy that buzz and that'll set me up for the day. The discipline of keeping it to that. But yeah. I like to get shit faced yeah, yeah. I like being high I like the yeah. what it does to my brain I like the the creativity yeah. but I have to say I'm just as creative or more creative when I don't do any of that stuff mm. tell me the role Kodiak had to play in this you suddenly appeared again in the in the wilds of Alaska I came back from from rehab at BBH they stopped me from going on a few jobs mm-hmm. But there was a job that came up, which was uh, to shoot a clinical therapy campaign for Vaseline in Kodiak off the coast of Alaska, population around 10,000 people. Everybody has a diverse kind of lifestyle. The weather conditions are diverse. Everybody has more than one job. They live off the land. They they have a thing called subsistence, so they can catch a a, a quarter of halibut or fish and Mm. salmon. Uh, you know, and different meat, deer and bear and things like that. At that time, there was probably 20 hours of daylight. And so I'd turn up in my waders with all my fishing gear in the car, having spent two or three hours fishing already, turned up at the shoe. We went to a different person's house, interviewed them, made a, made a mini documentary about them, yeah. their life, yeah. from the point of view of their, how it affected their skin. Yeah. Uh, and then I would take off and go fishing again. And I think it was just this realization of this is what humanity is, the, the highest point of humanity, coexisting, taking care of the land because the land feeds you and understanding where your food comes from and what goes into that food because you have to catch it. And also the sense of community, taking care of people. I think anybody that is in, in any kind of recovery, they'll say community is your saviour. You know, like I always say to my people that I talk to on a daily, weekly basis that when they fall off the wagon, and I know they're not answering the call, one message I always leave them is, it's not as bad as your mind is telling you it is. Yeah, I agree. Go to bed, wake up in the morning. Start again. And start again. It's okay. Somebody told me a great thing, which is the chasm of the past. Right, yeah, yeah. There's one step into the future and there's a chasm of the past. Oh, that's cool. It's a cool one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I you also mentioned before we went, we, we pressed record, that this is somehow elementally back to Sheffield and north of England. So I like it. I think I come from a family, mum's side, of poachers and hunters and mm. fishermen. And, you know, granddad was a, a, a massive nature buff. 
running and playing in the streams and making tiles yeah. and swings and shooting sparrows with an air gun and you yeah. know like living with nature and seeing nature and having that as being a, a barometer against mm. life we're part of what we're doing like with Smith and Co the company I've set up with my wife one of the projects that we have is human nature right. and in that it's about creating juxtapositions between humanity yeah. and nature and how fucked up that process is give a plug for where people can see your work on uh, oh Smith sorry Smith and, Smith and Co. com. Smith and Co. com. okay yeah, Smith and Co. com. so tell us what it is broken down into uh, into three components be say and do so right. who, what we are and who we are is be yeah. so be yourself yeah uh, and, and share it yeah be honest about it and then say is the blog part where we say and we share all the things that we're doing and, and the process and do is the part where that's like the gallery where we show all our art so um, Smith & Co Smith is from Sheffield England uh, from the west and Co is from Seoul Korea yang. from the east so there's a little bit of yin and yang yeah. there and so really just trying to find a familiar place where we can fit yeah Things like what we're doing today, Sean, is just collaborations with like, people you love who are just trying to find a different path and who care about people and want to make a difference uh, by sharing our discoveries that people will start to reciprocate that and doors will start to open. Easily the most candid guest I've had on this show and also somebody who you can see, I hope, is sharing some quite difficult things with people in, in a hope to allow his experiences to be helpful to other people and to help change the world. I wish you all the best in your new venture. It's great to see you again, mate. Yeah, likewise, buddy. Thank you. And thanks for listening. Anybody out there needs a, an ear, drop me a line. I'm smithandco.com. Take care, bud. Cheers.